Our um, passage this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 8 to 16. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. Now verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man, and him as good as dead, as that as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city for them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you that you have prepared for us a, a heavenly city, a heavenly country. And they were looking forward to that time when we shall be with you and live with you forever and ever. Father, we pray now for Tom that you would bless him and that you would speak through him and that, that you would work in our hearts to prepare the, the, the message. We thank you for your word and for what it will accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. We are on the second of three messages on the central promise of the Bible. And uh, this is is a a theme, as I said last week, that I've been thinking about for a very long time. And I pray that that God will use this. I pray that uh, this will make sense to you, that you'll see the unity of Scripture on this. And you'll recognize that this is uh, not just a magnificent truth. It's a truth that touches our lives, affects all that we do every single day. We talked about the promise in the Old Testament last week. And this week we're going to view the promise in the New Testament. And it is the same promise. And it is the same person. The promise is in three parts. People, place, and blessing. And the blessing is a relational blessing. The focus of it is blessed blessed relationship with God and with God's people. In more expanded form, the promise is this. God will create a people for himself, made fit by him 
to be with him, to dwell in his presence. Secondly, he will prepare a place of abundant provision for that people. And then finally, he will dwell in blessed relationship with that people in that place for all eternity. And I said last time that the promise is entirely dependent on a person. And that person is the same person in both Testaments. That person in the Old Testament is spoken of as the, the, the righteous branch, as the, uh, the promised Messiah of God, as the king on the throne of David. Uh, he is, I believe throughout the Old Testament, he is the one identified as the angel of Yahweh. Angel means messenger also. He is the one who makes Yahweh known to men in the Old Testament. We see him over and over and over, the second person of the Trinity. The promise is dependent on and is realized through the promised person and is the same person throughout the scriptures. Now, I want to start this morning in Matthew, and then we're going to look in Hebrews at the passage that Paul just read. I mentioned last time that there are only two instances in the entire Bible in all the uses of the word name, the, the, that amazing word. There are only two instances in which God says that he will make a human being's name great. There are many, there are many men whose names were exalted among men, but there's only two to which to whom God says, I will make your name great. And those two men are Abraham and David. Abraham in Genesis 12, David in 2 Samuel 7. And in both cases, what will make the man's name great is his miraculous connection with the only one whose name is actually worthy to be praised, and that's Jesus. I mentioned also last time there are four major covenants in the Old Testament that God made with those whom he identified as his people. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant known as the Law of Moses, the Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant. Three of those covenants are unilateral, one directional. God says, I will, I will, I will. One of them is bilateral, the covenant with Moses. I will, if you will. I also said that in the end, all four end up being unilateral because the one who ends up keeping Israel's part of the law of Moses, of the covenant given through Moses, is Jesus, not Israel. Two of those three unilateral covenants were made to the two men whose names God said he would make great, Abraham and David. In 2 Samuel 7 and in Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37, we find that all three parts of God's promise to Abraham show up in his promise to King David. And both, in both of those covenants are fulfilled in the new covenant uh, by the blood of Jesus. With those things in mind, I want to read the very first verse of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This, the only genealogy I know about that starts at the end. It starts with Jesus, and then it goes backward. It leaps backward 
many generations from Jesus to David. And then it goes backward again, many generations from David to Abraham. And then it starts from Abraham and works its way generation by generation back to Jesus. It's an extraordinary genealogy because it has an agenda. It's a genealogy with a very strong theological point. Matthew, in his Gospel of Christ, is taking very great pains to make a connection between three men. Abraham, David, and Jesus. As he launches into his account of the one who fulfills God's promises, all of God's promises, he makes this connection exceedingly clear. The next thing that happens in Matthew's gospel after the genealogy from Abraham to Jesus is the birth of Jesus. And the first thing that he says about the birth of Jesus is to point out that it was a virgin birth. The birth of Jesus Christ, verse 18, was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, that means sexually, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Again, Matthew has an agenda. When Jesus was born, Israel was looking for the long-promised Messiah. They were looking for the one in the line of David who would fulfill the promise to David. That there would be a king who would reign on his throne forever and ever in righteousness and justice. God sent that king in the form of an infant, in the form of a, a newborn child. And the next thing that Matthew points out is a conversation between God and Joseph, who became the adopted, adoptive father of Jesus, who had nothing to do with the, the conception of Jesus. In chapter 20, it says, when he had considered this, the things Joseph, considering what was going on with his wife, who was now pregnant and had not had sexual intercourse, says, when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Mary was also from the lineage of David. For that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. That name means he saves. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. It is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, and he's talking about the prophet Isaiah, might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God with us. When Jesus was born, the people of Israel were looking for the promised deliverer. They were looking for the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Promises made to David, the promise of people, place, and blessed relationship with God. But what they expected was a deliverer who would come and he would, he, would, he would exalt Israel as a nation and he would be the king that they had been waiting for. But the problem was that the people who had received the promise were not convinced that they needed blessed relationship with God. They thought they already had it. They, they said, we have, the, we have the temple, we have the priesthood, we have the sacrifices. 
The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. This was their, their proclamation. We're special. We are okay with God. We have right relationship with God. When Jesus came, everything that he said, everything that he said to the Jews said, no, you don't. When Jesus came the first time, he did not come to establish the promised kingdom on earth. He came to populate the promised kingdom. He came to turn sinners into men and women and children made worthy to dwell in the presence of God. But they rejected their own Messiah. John 1 says, He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. But to as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Most Israelites did not. Most Israelites did not receive him. Now, before we move on to Hebrews, I, I, what I want you to see here in Matthew is, again, Matthew has an agenda, and the agenda is to connect Jesus back to David and back to Abraham and to take the promises that were given to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to, and to make it clear that they needed a Savior to come and save them from their sins, and Jesus is that Savior, and that's not what they were expecting. And throughout the Gospel of Matthew, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, what you find is Jesus is laying this in the face of the Jews, and he's saying, you are not right with God. And the righteousness that God requires is his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus. Now, let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. This chapter is known as the Faith Hall of Fame. This is the one that Brother Paul was just reading from. Uh, 19 times, 19 times in one chapter, we see the phrase, by faith. That's what the chapter is about. It is about the nature of faith, the object of faith, in other words, the content of faith, and several historical examples of faith put on display for all God's people in all ages of the church. The content of that faith is the same threefold promise that we've been looking at in the Old Testament. People, place, and blessed relationship with God. Let's talk about the people first. The nation of Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were never declared by God to be the end point, the fulfillment of his promise to call out a people for his own possession from the mass of sinful humanity. Not in either testament. Just as the priesthood under the old covenant was not the full realization of God's intention to provide a mediator between God and man, just as the tabernacle was not the full realization of God's intention to dwell in the midst of his people, just as the sacrifices were not the full realization of God's intention to provide a blood atonement that would cover the sin debt of men, so also the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were never the full realization of God's intention to create a people made worthy to dwell with him. That people is the church. And there's no ambiguity here. 
In 2 Peter chapter 9, 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1, 9 is what I meant to say. Peter, he draws from the language of Exodus 19, which is the chapter before the giving of the Ten Commandments, where God, where Israel is at Mount Sinai and God is telling them who they are. God is just telling them what their identity is. And, it's, and Peter says, For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. But he's not talking to Israel. He's talking to the church. And he goes on and he says, That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people but now you are the people of God. You would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. <laughs> and those words are from Hosea, which was, which was declared to Israel. God divorced them. And then he said he's going to bring them back. He's going to make them his people. Whether Jew or Gentile, the only way that anyone becomes the people of God is because of the person who fulfills all of these promises, and that person is Jesus, the one who brings us out of darkness into light. The Jews didn't think they needed that. They needed it just as much as everyone else did. It is not physical lineage. It is not law-keeping that makes men and women and children the people of God. It is faith in the gospel promises of God. And what makes what made the Old Testament promises gospel promises? Well, it's because they're fulfilled in Jesus. The promise to Abraham, seed, land, blessing. The promise to David, God will make a place for his people. He will bless his people. He will give them a king over his people. And that king will be the one who is his own presence in the midst of his people, Ezekiel 37. The one who fulfills those promises is Jesus. Again, this was not new news in the New Testament. Genesis 12, Isaiah 19, Zechariah chapter 2, many other passages make it very, very clear in the Old Testament that the, the true people of God will be made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. This is not new news. Remember the promise to Abram in Genesis 12. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just the families that came from Abraham physically. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Let me read that. It is not as though the word of God has failed, and he's talking about the fact, Paul is talking about the fact that the Israelites have rejected Christ, and he, he's, he would do anything for his Israelite brethren, for them to be saved. And he says, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, from Jacob. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And, and then, then Paul makes it really clear. He wants to keep, uh, keep anyone from coming to an erroneous conclusion from that statement. In case anyone is looking at that and saying, okay, so it's not just the physical descendants of Abraham, it's the physical descendants of Abraham and Isaac. That's the real people of God. Here's what he says next. 
That is, in other words, let me explain, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Not the children of the flesh, but the children of the promise. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul finishes pulling back the curtain regarding God's intention to create a people for his own possession. In Galatians 3, he, he says the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And then he says the word seed in the Old Testament was singular, not plural. And he says the seed is Jesus. He's making an extraordinary point. What he's saying is the people of God who would become like the sands of the seashore and like the stars of the heavens in number, they would not be identified by physical lineage. He's saying they would be identified by their union with Jesus Christ because the promise was made to Jesus. That's how you become the people of God is by being brought into union with the one who is the, to whom the promise was given. Does that make sense? That's, that's what Paul is, is saying. That's what, that's what he's getting at here. And then in verses 20, listen to verses 24 to 29. Therefore, the law, the law of Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, that Israel did not fulfill, has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified, how? By faith. Justified means declared righteous in the eyes of God. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you were all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek that means Gentile. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one. How? In Christ Jesus. By being brought into union with Christ. And then he says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. <laughs> it's not lineage. It's not according to lineage. It's not according to law-keeping. You are heirs according to promise. The people of God become the people of God by trusting in the gospel promise of God in both testaments of God's Word. The people are the same people that God was talking about in the Old Testament. It's been the same from beginning to end. They're people of the faith of Abraham. And the place is the same as well. Hebrews 11, the passage that, that Paul read, we're going to look some more at that. Let me read again verses 8 through 10 real quick. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance... And he went out not knowing where he was going. And then listen to verse 9. By faith, he lived as an alien, not outside of the land of promise, but in the land of promise. He lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, who were fellow heirs of the same promise. 
for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, not men, God. The writer of Hebrews is, he is pulling back the curtain and he's showing us the heart of a man who lived 4,000 years ago, Abraham. And he's telling us that when Abraham picked up his stuff and took his family and walked all the way up the Tigris and Euphrates rivers from Mesopotamia and then came down into the land of Canaan, he was going to a place he didn't know anything about, he had never seen, and once he got there, he lived there as a foreigner. He lived there as an alien. He didn't live there as someone who had come to his, his promised place. He lived there as someone who was looking for another place. That's what, that's what the writer says. He was looking for another place. It's amazing, but that's what it says. And then <laughs> verse 16 says the place he was looking for and that all of the patriarchs were looking for is a better place, a heavenly place. That's the word, a heavenly place. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. He has prepared a city for them. But next week, we're going to find out that that city is 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, and 1,500 miles high. It's a cubed city. And it is the new heavens and the new earth, and it is the new Jerusalem, the place in which righteousness dwells. Now, if the patriarchs were looking for a better place, then how... How does this work? <laughs> How can Canaan be described in the Old Testament as the land flowing with milk and honey that God promised to his people when it was actually, it was the land, it was the land in which the Canaanites committed every possible abomination against God that was imaginable. And then when Israel and Judah, when the Israelites and the Judahites came into the land, they did the same thing. And so God cast them out of the land because they broke his covenant. If the, if the promise is unilateral, if God says, I will give you a place, I will make you a people, I will give you a place, and I will dwell in that place with you, if the promise is unilateral, how does, it, how does this work? How is it that, that the Jerusalem that God keeps calling the city of David and the city of God become the city that killed all the prophets of God, the city that, to whom Jesus says, how often I wanted to gather you under my wings, but you would not have it. How can that city be the promised Zion, the mountain of God, the place in which God will dwell forever in the midst of his worthy people? Well, the way that works out is pretty much the same as, as the way it works out that, that the new Ken Hillard, Ken Hillard is, he bears the same name as the old Ken Hillard. The redeemed one bears the same name as the unredeemed one, but he's a new person. And he has a new identity, and that identity is in Christ. It's because of his union with Christ. And God looks at him and he sees him entirely differently than he did before. Instead of seeing his sin, he looks at him and he sees one who is clothed and covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ by the grace of God alone through faith in Christ alone. 
He still calls him Ken Hillard, but he's a whole different person. Beloved, from the very beginning when God started talking about Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of David, the city in which he would come and dwell in the midst of his people, Zechariah chapter 2, and it would have no walls and he would be its fortification and he would be the righteousness within it. From the time that God first started talking about that city, God had in mind the redeemed Jerusalem. He had in mind the new Jerusalem. He did not have in mind the Jerusalem that we know today. The land of promise has always been a heavenly land. It has always been the place in which righteousness dwells. It has always been the place in which God, the holy, righteous God in whom there is no darkness, will dwell in the midst of a people whom he has made light. That's how God has always seen the city that he intends for his people. And so in John chapter 14, on the night before Jesus was crucified in our place, he had his disciples with him, his beloved disciples. Peter had just denied him three times, and his heart was, his heart was just sick. Peter's heart was sick, but Jesus knew what exactly what was going on. And here's what Jesus said to his disciples. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way that I am going. <laughs> and then Thomas says, no, wait a minute. We don't even know the place. How do we know the way to get to the place? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. <laughs> there are two things that we learn about the place in those verses. First, it's a place that Jesus left to prepare for us. Turns out he's going to bring it with him when he comes back. Secondly, we learn that it's the place where the Father is. It's the place where Jesus is. It's the place where the Father is. It's the place where the Spirit is, where the triune God dwells in the midst of his redeemed people. That's the place that's promised to us. And what makes it heaven is the presence of God and of God's people. That's what makes it heaven. I loved what my brother Bob said a long time ago, that when streets are paved with gold, that means gold is as plentiful as asphalt. It's not the gold you'll get excited about. It's the God who made the place for you so he could live there with you. Beloved, this promise is absolutely magnificent. And the fact that it is all about God bringing, bringing us to the place where he will dwell together with us comes to the very nature and essence of the blessing that is promised to God's people. And it is a blessing of relationship with God. It's a blessing of communion and union and fellowship with God forever that no one can take away from us. Paul said in Romans 8 that... Tribulation, distress, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, 
death, demons, things present, things to come, life, death, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That is what God has promised to us as his children, is his unassailable, everlasting love. That's what belongs to us. We have the promise of eternal communion with the one whose holiness we, we have no, no worthiness to even come anywhere near, but he makes us, he makes us holy in Christ by putting us into union with Christ. That's his indescribable gift. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about the fulfillment, promises of the fulfillment, the prophecies. And we're going to look in Isaiah chapter 60. We're going to look especially in that chapter and in Revelation 21 and 22. And the second thing we're going to really dive into next time is the absolute indispensability of this promise for living well now. This this promise, the threefold promise of people, place, and blessed relationship is the anchor of our soul. It is our hope. So we're going to look at what that's all about next time, but there's, but there's one thing I want to finish with this morning, and that is I want to, I want to tell you, I want to share with you or something you, you know already, but I want to remind you that that promise is already yours, and it's already realized at, at, in a magnificent level. Um, in John 14, again, the night before Jesus died in our place, a little while after, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I'm going to go. I'm going to prepare that place for you. And I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He didn't just mean later when he comes again. He meant real soon. And he says, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. And then in verse 23, he says, we, I and the Father, will come and will make our abode with you, in you, in the person of the Holy Spirit, the helper that he's talking about in that chapter and that he talks about in chapter 16. The Holy Spirit, beloved, already indwells us. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In him, in Christ, you also, Gentiles, not just Jews, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who was given as a pledge, a down payment of your inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. You remember this morning, the praise of the glory of God's grace? When you heard the message of the gospel, if you belong to him, when you heard that message and you trusted in Jesus, God sealed you with his Holy Spirit. He put his spirit inside you as the down payment of your everlasting inheritance. And if the down payment is a person, the third, the third person of the Trinity, it makes sense that the rest of the inheritance is the triune God. It's relational. That's, that's what the promise is about. And God says, when you heard and when you believed, you were signed sealed and will soon be delivered into my kingdom and presence where I will dwell with you in your midst for all eternity together with all of my redeemed ones. That is the promise that God has made to you and me. And that promise is fulfilled only in Jesus Christ. We already have that 
down payment. We already have that richness of relationship. Every time we come together here on Sunday morning, beloved, every time in, during the week we get together with our brothers and sisters in Christ and we do life with them, which is what God intends, and we enter into their sorrows and we enter into their joys, every time we do that, we are participating in the promise that we have for all eternity. And we get to enjoy it. And we get to delight in it. You guys are my delight because of Christ in you. Don't undervalue the magnitude of what God has already put in our hands because it is magnificent. Loving Father, thank you for this extraordinary, indescribable promise, this gift that you've given to us in Jesus Christ, that when we deserved only condemnation, you plucked us out and you, you marked us out before, the, before anything exi existed except you, and you reached, you reached into history and you plucked us out of the mass of fallen humanity. And Father, you opened our eyes and our ears and you, you brought us to faith and you made us your children. You took us from being dead in, dead in our sin to being made alive in Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places where you're going to spend the rest of eternity lavishing, lavishing upon us the surpassing riches of your kindness toward us in him. And that's ours now. It's ours now. Father, what you have given to us is magnificent. And we thank you that it's already started. We thank you for what we have now. We pray that we would never diminish or undervalue it, that we would delight in you together with one another until the day that we get to put the curse behind us by your doing and we get to, we get to be in the place that Jesus went to prepare for us. Oh, Father, we look forward to that day. And we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.